Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated. Uh, this is a show that doesn't ask you for sponsorship on Patreon. I make it, and I sort of want to just put it out into the world entirely free. Um, there are, however, shows that uh, I think very highly of and that do need support. And so I just want to give a very quick shout out to Unauthorized Disclosure, The Katie Halper Show, Adam Proctor's Dead Pundit Society, and District Sentinel, or as I like to call it, The Better Democracy Now. Those shows are all uh, made by really hardworking people. They're people who are trying to make their careers out of this work, and they do need your support to make that happen. So if you have a couple of extra dollars, maybe send some their way. I know they'd appreciate it, and uh, I know they're certainly putting the money to good use. Now, on this show, this week's episode is going to be Michael Tracy of the Young Turks. Tracy, by his own account, is a man of the left, though you wouldn't necessarily know that to read some of the commentaries that have been written about him online. Uh, he's primarily known for his iconoclastic views on what he calls the Russia derangement. That's something we addressed on this show um, all the way back in episode one with Tara McCormack. Now, Tracy and I set this interview up a few days ago uh, with a view primarily to talking about the events that went down in Chicago last weekend, uh, which, if you didn't know, was uh, the Democratic Socialists of America convention. Uh, we'll talk about some of that here, but uh, and we'll especially actually address the controversy surrounding the election of Danny Fatante to the DSA's National Political Committee. Uh, but we recorded this interview early afternoon on Sunday, August 13th. And of course, overnight, we did have the tragic news of right-wing violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we did feel it was appropriate to try to discuss that um, in our conversation today. So in true form, uh, Tracy does have some views on this subject, which might not be entirely popular among left comrades. But I do think Sometimes internal criticism can be a very healthy thing. So um, I hope you'll enjoy the show. Um, if you have feedback, uh, you can reach us on Twitter at OccupyIRTheory. And uh, Michael Tracy himself can be followed uh, on Twitter at mtracy. That's at M-T-R-A-C-E-Y. Well, without any further ado, here's the man himself. And uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Right. Um, Michael, welcome to Fully Automated. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, let's just jump right in here. We're talking on Sunday, August 13th, uh, the day after some pretty horrific events in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, during a scheduled Unite the Right rally in the city, a 20-year-old Ohio man by the name of James Alex Fields drove a car into a crowd of counter-protesters uh, and killed a 32-year-old woman by the name of Heather Hare. He injured 19 others, a number of whom are still in intensive care. Now, I want to get into you more about the abstract and theoretical elements of this later in the show. But just for now, um, initial thoughts. How can we begin to conceive of the significance of that car driving into those people? It's profoundly upsetting. I don't encourage people to watch the video. But, but what does it say about where we are right now? <laughs> You know, I've been uh, commenting on aspects of the entire imbroglio uh, in Charlottesville yesterday on Twitter, and it definitely is dicey because, especially now with emotions running high, uh, people on sort of hair trigger alert, understandably, um, you want to be as judicious as possible uh, when talking about this because things can get easily misconstrued or misinterpreted. Um, in terms of the violent act itself, I think, yes, yeah, so by all, uh, all signs, mm -hmm. it seemed to indicate that it was a deliberate attack on, on anti-fascist demonstrators or, or left-wing demonstrators or what have you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have, uh, we don't, there has been no formal uh, statement as to what the explicit motives of the driver might have been, but I think it's fair to infer at this point, that it was very likely uh, a, a deliberate act of, of political violence. Um, again, I don't think I don't know that we should necessarily declare that with absolute certainty. Right. Um, just because there are perhaps some countervailing details which might arise. You yeah. know, it, interestingly enough, 
Um, the ACLU Virginia, uh, Virginia Twitter account yesterday was kind of documenting the goings on. And at one point, whoever was running the account um, seemed to state that, you know, the car had a uh, had something thrown at it. And then maybe uh, a, maybe as a result of that, it might have, you know, driven in a particular direction. It's just hard, difficult to say at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a per, probably a preponderance of evidence that makes it reasonable to infer that it was a deliberate act of violence. But we don't want to foreclose any possibility that there could be an alternate or mitigate mitigating details that might come out. And that, but that said, um, it definitely is, uh, harrowing. Um, I see. And one of the questions I had yesterday, and I actually asked this in total earnestness (laughs) and, uh, in good faith, obviously you can't control how people will, reactor if they'll actually acknowledge the, sure. the good faith. But my question was, okay, so you have this event going on, probably a couple hundred, it seems, uh, you know, uh, fascistic rally goers, whatever term you want to use. Yeah. My question was, what is the ratio of counter protesters, journalists and spectators to actual rally goers? So I think that would be telling. I mean, if the rally goers vastly outnumbered um, uh, the uh, the others, and I guess you could include police in the others, because uh, if you look at what the uh, you know the, the leaders of this this group have been saying, most of their harshest criticisms have been directed at police, who they feel you know infringe on their rights or whatever. Okay. So if you group together the police. The spectators, the protesters, and the journalists. What is the ratio of that group to rallygoers? Because if there's a lopsided discrepancy that um, is against the rallygoers, perhaps that's a sign that we ought to maybe put into perspective how formidable of a force this really is. I mean, if this was supposed to be their marquee event that people from all over the country were traveling to, yeah. They couldn't even muster, you know, a, a couple hundred people by the. A, they could barely muster, yeah, a couple hundred people. Yeah, I think that is worth highlighting, just mm-hmm. because. Mm-hmm. I think inflating threats, and this goes across the board, is usually inadvisable. Now, the right, right wing, for you know, uh, fifteen years, has inflated the threat of radical Islamic terrorism. Yes, you know, there's a point. there's a there, there's a kernel of the of truth to what they allege is a threat. Meaning that there are some, you know, truly reactionary Islamists who are willing to uh, uh, oppress, you know, the vulnerable and, and take violent action. But at the same time, inflating the threat that they allegedly pose serves a political purpose for these right wing, you know, commentators, politicians, and so forth. Um, so it just strikes me that in other contexts, you'd have people on the left either responding derisively or, 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 or mocking mm-hmm. this attempt to inflate threats out, all out of proportion. Yeah. Um, and I think a similar logic can be applied here. And again, it is no and, – and, and to, to worry that there might be a disproportionate focus on, or, uh, on this or an inflation of the actual threat posed is to in no way come to the defense of the, neo, of the, of the neo-Nazis or, or whatever term we're using to describe these people. I and I think conf- uh, making that conflation is so insidious because it really limits one's ability to honestly discuss things, especially on public fora. Yeah. Um, namely, uh, social media, which is just so poorly suited <laughs> at times to actually oh, doing rational yeah. dialogue. Um, but, but, but I know if I were to like do a tweet size version of that <sighs> thought that I just outlined, yeah. it'd be immediately like within seconds or less. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Construed as somehow to come into the defense of, of, of Nazis. And I think that's just a, just an, uh, a troubling turn yeah. for, discourse to take. Um, 
so that was one of my um, initial thoughts in reaction to yesterday, and I guess I'll I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, but- uh, I mean, well, the nice thing about a, a podcast is it's it's longer form, and certainly I want to make sure that you have the space to to outline that. So I'm going to get back to that point um, uh, in a slightly from a slightly different angle, I think, later in the show, but. Um, well, I, you know, we've we've skipped over some important questions here because obviously that's breaking news. But um, I do kind of want to um, get back to some of your sort of more well-known commentaries. And I also want to talk to you about the Democratic Socialists of America because I met you um, at the Democratic Socialists of America convention in Chicago uh, last weekend, and, and we obviously had some things to talk about there. So we will cover some of those things, I think, now in the next few minutes, and then we'll get back to Charlottesville um, towards the end of the show, I think, because um, there's uh, there's some overlap here uh, between some of the coverage, I think, of the convention and maybe some of the um, um, philosophical problems, uh, if you will, raised by what's happened in Charlottesville. So anyway, uh, Michael, you're a, you're a journalist with the Young Turks, or TYT as it's uh, more popularly known. And um, as your fans will know, your work is accessed most commonly, I think, via YouTube. Um, but just for unfamiliar listeners, um, you're something of an iconoclast, I guess, on the left, um, if you're comfortable with that term. And... Um, you have specific views, for example, on the ongoing national drama of Russia's involvement in the election of Donald Trump as president. Um, some people associate this kind of skepticism with uh, Republicans, but it seems to me that your views are decidedly more left wings. First, can you just, I think, uh, maybe generally or talk generally about your basic ideological stance right now? What are your politics? I uh, had that question from a number of Twitter followers who uh, you know, I, I let them know, uh, I posted that you were coming on the show and they were really sort of keen that I ask you that, you know, what are, what are <laughs> uh, Michael Tracy's politics? Right. You know, this is a question I get frequently, like, sure. what are your politics? <laughs> and in a sense, I almost find the question a little reductive because what I would prefer is that my statements or my arguments or my views mm. um, stand on their own as an indication of what my my politics are. I almost feel as though this eagerness to compel people to assign themselves a label can be counterproductive and, and gets people into this weird semantic tussle um, where they're constantly fighting over you know who fits under what. Um, label and, and that kind of thing. And I, I, I almost find it tedious. Um, I've always more associated with the left, for sure. Um, where, where that actually pins me down on whatever spectrum currently exists, I don't know. I just mm-hmm. know that I've always had an affinity in large part um, with uh, left-wing writers and, and thinkers – and at the same time, I'm contemptuous of a lot of what I see on the left, which yeah. um, or uh, maybe maybe that would be better described as the center left. But if but yeah, the point is, um, you talk about iconoclasm. I mean, I don't know that I would assign myself that label, but I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, reject it. Um, the, the point of iconoclasm is, um, I would think. It's to be constantly cognizant of rhetorical excesses or fallacies, yeah, or um, or lazy argumentation coming from people with whom you might otherwise identify with or have accord with. Um, so that is per- and, and perhaps my attentiveness to that is um, related to why some may view me as iconoclastic. Um, uh, but then, uh, then again, I don't know. I, I'm I'm happy to let people <laughs> make whatever conclusions they want that about totally my yeah. ideological disposition. Just a quick point on, on on the Young Turks. You know, it is a primarily YouTube-based outfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the reasons that I was brought on now uh, six or seven months ago is to um, spearhead a write written component. So I do. Oh blog posts and uh and other other writings for uh, the young turks medium page um and i usually pair that with it with a video of, of some kind or or usually 
Um, so my, my, my instinct journalistically has always been, um, text based. Um, so the fact that I now would be known for doing video stuff is sort of novel. And, um, and so I, my, my intention has always been to kind of, uh, incorporate a, a more uh, an emphasis on, on written written journalism um, within within TYT and also the other publications that I I still uh, write for on, on occasion. Uh, but that's just sort of a uh, a uh, procedural note. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for clarifying. Um, right. So um, so go ahead, please yeah yeah um, so yes I'm I'm happy to um, to state just without any kind of, um, obsc- obscurantism <laughs> that I, um, I've always identified more with, with the left going back many years. Uh, it just seems as though now that my most vociferous critics tend to be also, uh, self-identified leftists, but that wasn't mm-hmm. always the case. I mean, in going back in an earlier portion of my, you know, writing and, and, and journalism career, um, and maybe calling it a career is a little, Awkward, just because I I disdain careerists, but um, <laughs> but going back year uh, several years, I mean, it was definitely people on the right who I was fighting with a lot more. Mm. Um, so I don't know if there has been an evolution in me or an evolution in the wider discourse or both that is maybe contributing to this current dynamic where I find that the people who are most incensed by what I do and say tend to be liberals or even 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 leftists uh, i think that's sort of an interesting question to probe i think it's probably a combination of factors um but that doesn't that doesn't um detract from my in- insistence that i've always situated myself much more on the left um than 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 on the right i know that's somewhat vague but i have to put it that way just because you know i've also had always had good relations i would say with people who were on the right you know i've written for years i had written for the american conservative uh Mm -hmm. magazine which is sort of an anti-establishmentarian right organ um because they have encouraged um a a select few of people uh uh, who are are self-identified progressives or on the left to contribute and i've always found that useful because it forces one to tailor arguments in such a manner that it can be amenable to a predominantly right audience. And I think that actually hones your reasoning faculties. Um, so that's what I've, I've appreciated about having done that. Um, and I've written for even, uh, even, you know, this is going back a few years now, but reason magazine and others, yeah. um, in addition to the kind of just nominally left and, and liberal publications that I've written for, I I've, I've tried to, not be boxed in by the left yeah. label to the extent right. that I can. Yeah. Um, so I think that's pro- perhaps led to certain people who are just observers of me and, mm. you know, why would they have a, a, a comprehensive understanding of me? I mean, um, it's not as if I've, I've met and <laughs> had long discussions over coffee with most of these people. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's led some to perhaps extrapolate um, that I'm a little more ideologically uh, uncategorizable then then maybe I I would see myself as so okay Michael I met you uh, first uh, time last weekend at the Democratic Socialists of America convention and uh, as I think most people who are following this organization by now know DSA is a uh, kind of one of the big shows in town right now on the left huge growth from about 6,000 members last November to 25,000 now. Um, it's uh, now the largest socialist organization in the United States since World War II. Um, between you and your colleague, Namiki Konst, uh, TYT had two journalists on the scene. And I know some other outlets had staff on site too. But by and large, I think it's safe to say the mainstream media overlooked the event. Um, Now, of course, they do tend to devote a lot of attention to the far right. Um, But after the convention, you had a post on Medium where you talked about this phenomena. And uh, I'm just wondering, maybe you could share your views on this now. Uh, How come TYT thought it was important enough to have two journalists present and the mainstream media, CNN, you know, didn't send anyone? 
Well, I mean, I could speak for myself. I don't speak for KYT institutionally, um, but uh, for my own purposes, I thought that, you know, given my mandate for KYT is to cover uh, American politics, um, this struck me as a phenomenon that is worth devoting, you know, the expenditure of resources to covering. Yeah. Um, Just because there are, uh, and, and I think it plays into also, sort of TYT's editorial ethos. I mean, it was TYT, this predated my tenure, Mm -hmm. um, but it was associated with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, People within the organization were definitely unabashed about proclaiming their support for Sanders. Um, And it developed um, audience growth on that ground, meaning a lot of people who wanted to get news that had a favorable slant towards Sanders came to... TYT, where that where they were disillusioned um, with other mainstream outlets. Um, mm. So this is part of the reason why institutionally the organization might be inclined to send um, multiple reporters to an event like this is because it's sort of a probably a smaller scale, uh, but nevertheless a continue a continuation of the coverage that was given to the Sanders phenomenon. I mean, a lot of people who had. Uh, volunteered for Sanders and who had come to know democratic socialism because of his camp- campaign have uh, been a little sort of homeless uh, or had been homeless and then they've gravitated at least in some measure to to DSA. Mm. Um, so just kind of putting it in that context I think just makes the imperative uh, for why it ought to be covered fairly obvious by the lights of, of TYT mm. and by me personally as well. Um you know, I would go. Uh, uh, I'm sort of interested in politics as they manifest across the spectrum. So, if there were a a vibrant and newly energized ideological movement going on on the right, my instinct would be to cover that as well. Um, but I definitely have a greater affinity um, as somebody who has you know traveled somewhat in left circles. I have yeah. a greater affinity for sure on a personal level with the people who would be going to a DSA convention Mm. um so that is probably a factor as well um for me um and so i mean that that, that's just a basic outline of why it is i sought to go i can't speak for miki i would i would suspect that her her rationale is similar yeah um about dsa itself um i was reading your again your post on medium you uh one of your observations about the convention was a perception of coastal bias in the organization. Um, you noted that New York City alone has 1,000 DSA members, um, and that it's possible that rural DSA members might have very different priorities. Now, I know you posted an interesting video with um, Zach Akola, who's a member from North Dakota, and now he's on the newly elected NPC he seemed to place a lot of emphasis on the need to be seen to address the material needs of ordinary people, whether through campaigning for you know, school lunches or Medicare for all. In your view, and, and based you, on what you saw at the convention, does DSA's urban bias set it up for any kind of clash with its rural comrades, or is that being resolved? Well, you know, I think clash might be overstating it. Yeah. I think a lot of this friction manifests in a way that is very subtle. Mm-hmm. And to the untrained eye, it might not even be apparent. Um, that's why I saw it as one of my um, goals in covering the convention to try to seek, seek out people from far-flung areas of the United States that are mm-hmm. that perhaps that are relatively underserved, not just within DSA, but in any. I mean, this is what's interesting is that this is sort of just a truism of American politics writ large um, that coastal affluent areas tend to be dominant in setting the agenda, um, whether it comes to the political media, whether it comes to national political organizations. Um, And to me, it was interesting that you could even see this dynamic on display within an organization like DSA, which has as one of its central uh, aims to foster comradely unity across the entirety of the U.S. So to me, that was just an indication of how intractable this problem of regional discrepancy is, um, and, and how 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 much attention it ought, ought to be given to uh, remediating that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was something that was a th- was a theme for me in covering the 2016 presidential election, where I was traveling to 
places um, in that ended up, you know, tipping pretty heavily to Trump. Um, and just the, the lack of, of consciousness about how life functions in those areas, I think, was a big contributor to why people were taken so uh, – Taken such so taken to, uh, by surprise by the outcome, and that just has a lot to do with how you know the media ecosystem in the U.S. is constructed. It's just right. there are um, uh, it just uh, the, 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 the how it how it how the media ecosystem operates in the U.S. is that people who are affluent and who are culturally influential congregate around a select few coastal enclaves, and they often seem to lack any self-awareness about how this might distort their perception of how American politics manifests on a national level. Um, and I think if, if there were no lessons, to, if there were any lessons to be learned from how 2016 uh, transpired, um, that ought to be one of them, that there needs to be a greater awareness of how these select few locales like Washington, D.C., New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, etc., how they exert um, outsized influence on the rest of the polity and how this can result in uh, a backlash. Mm. Um, this is not a new theme <laughs> for American politics. It goes back to de Tocqueville right. in a sense. <laughs> but I think it's good to, give a, uh, to remind people about how um, – about how it, how it, how sh- how it rears its ugly head in some ways, and how, um, how it can it it, it can warp um, political formations and political organizing. Um, so th- th- that this dynamic was even evident in DSA again, just kind of re uh, emphasized to me or underscored to me at how how intractable the problem is, and how much. Of an imperative, it ought to be for people to just be cognizant of it and to take reasonable steps. But I, I also want to emphasize, and I said this in the Medium post, mm-hmm. that very frequently it's not active malice um, that underlies this kind of regional discrepancy issue. So you're not going to see somebody from New York City um, going out of his or her way to t- uh, make slights at somebody from North Dakota or or, or, or West Texas or something. Um, the, the bias is going to surface in ways that are, again, a lot more subtle, um, a lot more rooted in just a basic unawareness of what the priorities are in rural Texas um, versus what the priorities might be in, in New York City. Um, so to highlight this issue is not to condemn any one individual or even group of individuals for – being um, out of touch or anything like that. It's just to say that the the, the problem is so um, is so uh, you know below the surface and 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 sometimes hard to identify that you need an active effort to actually ensure that there is a lasting cognizance of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, at the uh, on your on your uh, YouTube feed, you you posted a. A really interesting interview with, um, uh, I guess he's a left-wing journalist. He's also a DSA member, but he's also, like yourself, um, if I can use that word, iconoclastic again, uh, a well-known anti-liberal, uh, Emmett Renson. And you guys uh, confessed to each other that you both had certain, shall we say, contrarian tendencies when it came to <laughs> online culture. And I know that you've recently also interviewed Angela Nagel, uh, and she also, I think, has had some... Uh, pretty caustic views on the left's online uh, tendencies. Uh, she's known for what she calls the uh, a concept of the, the Tumblr left. Um, but when it came to the convention, you and Renson actually seemed to sort of do a little turn on this, and you seemed to agree that there was actually perhaps something useful to online culture that really was only really revealed when you were there, uh, that maybe Twitter had paved the way for actually a much more productive weekend. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, well, first I should say that uh, Emmett and Angela are, are – are, I would consider them the leading lights of any um, any uh, burgeoning left-wing movement. And the fact that they 
apparently produced so much consternation amongst <laughs> purported leftists, I think, is a somewhat troubling sign. But it's also a sign that they're actually effective. Yeah. Uh, because in any vibrant movement, there ought to be um, hot contestation <laughs> of <laughs> of even even the uh, fundamental principles that people are operating under. Um, but yeah, that was sort of an interesting dynamic that I had a discussion with, with Emmett about, um, you know, what caused me to think about that topic was that uh, a lot of the recent growth of DSA, it seems to me has been driven by this sort of youthful online, slightly aesthetically subversive meme heavy culture. Yeah. And, that culture tends to be very inflected with irony and sometimes multiple levels of irony. Mm-hmm. In fact, you see that sort of manifest across the spectrum. So even these alt-right guys tend to dabble in that aesthetic. Definitely. Um, so it doesn't really have a basis in one political philosophy or the or the other. I think it's come to be recognized as just how – people of a certain age engage with online discourse. Right. Um, now, the multiple layers of irony thing has led me to wonder at times whether um, whether this kind of aversion to earnest engagement um, is conducive to actual political action. Um, because... If you don't, if you're constantly, uh, you know, if, uh, if you're constantly sort of mired in this ironic detachment pose, then sometimes it, it occurs to me that you might not have any actual principles, <laughs> or you might not um, have any f- at least first principles that would impel you to get involved in political organizing or to seek certain ends, and you know that. I didn't have a a a, co- a fully uh, developed theory around that. It was just sort of a thought I've had at times, and I've, mm-hmm. I've written about aspects of. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps this is a result of per, uh, Twitter and, and online culture exerting disproportionate influence on me, um, <laughs> which I should be, which I should take note of, and and uh, perhaps remedy. Um, but. Going into the DSA convention, given the influx of new members who might have been um, had their consciousness raised by this online Definitely. culture, Definitely. my 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 operating um, question was: Is there a balance that can be healthily struck uh, between this this mode of online uh, behavior and uh, actual serious kind of even uh, tedious and and uh, and and uh, just basic shoe leather, I guess, uh, political work. Uh, and my sense now is that there probably is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the if DSA was stuck in sort of an outmoded style of cultural um, affectation, perhaps it never would have intrigued the people that it's intrigued on, on the basis of it, uh, of the online stuff. Um, but I didn't r- come across a whole lot of ironic detachment <laughs> at the yeah, convention. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I didn't, um, get the sense that that aspect of how people engage with the organization was necessarily operative in how they engaged with it on a ground level in person. Um, so what I sort of conclude from that, tend, tentatively conclude, is that people are sort of able to compartmentalize. They don't allow the, the uh, multi-layered irony shtick to yeah. necessarily be a determinator yeah. of how actual politics looks like when you're not behind your phone or computer. Mm. Um, so that was sort of heartening, I think. And again, that probably should have been self-evident to me ahead yeah. of time. But I guess, um, given that a lot of what I do on a daily basis involves uh, tuning in to the online discussion, um, it seems pretty pretty predictable that that might have a distorting effect on one's yeah. <laughs> cognition in a way. But you mentioned this sort of 
disparity in terms of media attention um, for right versus left wing populism. And this is a thought or, or organizing rather. And this is a thought that I had at the convention itself. And I just wrote up a quick tweet paragraph and, uh, and sent it out and it provoked sort of an interesting discussion. But I think, you know, in light of the events yesterday in, in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. the point that I was raising seems doubly relevant. Um, so you had a, a couple hundred of these, um, a couple hundred of these alt-right guys or, or whatever you want to call them mm-hmm. who show up to Charlottesville and aren't even doing much in the way of actual organizing. It would seem at least at their actual unite the right rally. And you have the entire national press corps transfixed on it for, I don't know, probably at minimum 48 hours. There'll probably yeah. be more next this coming week. Um, Whereas at this democratic uh, socialist has gone up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and to be fair, I mean, the, the torch brandishing aesthetic is very jarring. So it would make yeah. sense that it, that would attract some attention, but the, just a week earlier or a week or so earlier, the democratic socialists were holding a convention where, you know, there were over a thousand people from all over the country who had shown up, you know, at a, for some, for some at their own expense, to uh, engage in a long weekend of actual legitimate organizing, hmm. and it and it prompts a fraction of the media media attention. There were a couple people there, um, some of whom do a, a reasonably good job um, at national outlets, but there was no chance that this would actually get any anywhere near the wall to wall coverage that a, an event on on the right of comparable magnitude would get you know this all, unite the right thing was of lesser magnitude <laughs> mm-hmm. but but it's all anybody can talk about and i think that's i think that's a that's a reflective of a lasting issue there just in terms of how the national media treats right and left yeah. organizing um, i think there, uh, there's a tendency to view right-wing organizing um, and and activism as exotic and inherently more interesting um, than than left-wing organizing. Which <laughs> you might even be able to make an argument that it is more interesting in a way. <laughs> um, but but at the same time, it reflects a certain bias, a structural bias within the national media that I think is a product of again there being. Uh, clustered around these select few areas where they don't encounter people, you know, right wing activist types on a regular basis. So they rush to, you know, send the cameras and the reporters to uh, to Charlottesville when there's something uh, salacious going on. Uh, so I just think that's something that people should be aware of uh, in terms of how you sort of adjudicate the relative strength of various ideological movements um, so there's, there seems to be this baked in bias um, toward giving extra and maybe unwarranted attention to right wing activism especially because it can be tied to Trump however loosely and that's that's kind of um, immediately going to give it a lot greater cachet in terms of media attention um, I have a question for you that actually I'm finding hard even now to formulate in my own head but I guess I'm trying to I want to see if I can get you to help me flesh out um, a, a dual concern with the way the word fascism is used these days. Because one thing that came up in the Renson interview uh, was this idea of, uh, I think, what you termed, um, but it was based on a piece he'd written, uh, scolding anti-fascism rhetoric. And that's to do with how mainstream liberals uh, seem to be turning to leftist discourse, uh, older leftist terminology, which is sort of un- unfamiliar coming out of their mouths, to be frank, um, um, in order to try to dress themselves up or pose themselves as anti-fascist in the face of Trump. You know, the resistance, a.k.a. Um, and on the one hand, you know, that definitely seems paradoxical or at least disingenuous uh, to a certain extent. But on the other hand... Um, it does seem after this weekend that even though, as we've touched on it, you know, their numbers may be small and their organizing isn't that impressive, there are these real fascists out there. And there have been incidents, um, especially racially motivated violence, you know, over the last few months, 
empowered or enabled or uh, you know pushed on, uh, goaded on uh, by the Trump administration and its various forms of dog whistling. Um, how do we sort of sit with this two kind of this dual concern, right? That that on the one hand the word fascism is being kind of used and overblown. On the other hand, that there is there does seem to be a need to sort of take pause and address the issue. Yeah, you know the basic thesis of that Renson piece, which we were discussing in the interview, seemed to me um, that when you allow people on the center left and or liberals or even some leftists to make out politics, contemporary politics, to be this sort of cosmic battle almost between fascists and anti-fascists. Mm-hmm. All of the nuance and all of the sort of internecine warfare that ought to go on, um, especially within the left at the moment, um, it gets it gets reduced into this bifurcated paradigm. Mm-hmm. And I think reducing things into that bifurcated paradigm is useful to a lot of people who who for for self interested reasons. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I sort of pledged to myself to not get too. Uh, agitated about Neera Tandon anymore, um, but you know at the same time she's always she's always available to to make a point for um, for me or uh, others who kind of view her skeptically. Yeah, and she says something along the lines of, you know, in reaction to the events of yesterday, she says something along the lines of how you know when there are real fascists in the in the streets, how dare people on the left be attacking. Um, you know what they who, who people who they regard as neoliberals or sellouts or God. whatever. Um, so that I think the the elevation of these these this handful of Nazis or fascists or whatever in the public consciousness serves a certain purpose for a lot of people um, um, who have a, a vested interest in inflating the threat they posed, kind of organizing political discourse around them, notwithstanding how relatively fringy they are or, or how little state power they actually exert. I mean, remember, remember it was the police who shut down their rally. Um, right. yeah, so, point. so, um, uh, so that's one aspect of this where I think the employment of fascist rhetoric, <coughs> um, uh, of rhetoric around fascism, kind of, uh, uh, kind of um, resuscitating these old terms, is done sort of disingenuously, and it's done for re- for reasons that are ultimately self uh, self interested, mm-hmm. um, because, um, and, and and that's that kind of plays into the wider kind of faux radical aesthetic. That a lot of liberals have tried to uh, um, adopt for themselves in the wake of Trump's election. I mean, resistance. And I talked about this with Emmett, but this idea that you're resisting by sending out <laughs> by sending out inflammatory tweets every couple hours, <laughs> or you're you're resisting by watching MSNBC, yeah. or uh, you're resisting by sending twenty dollars to John Ossoff. I mean. This is ridiculous. I mean, this yeah. is self-evidently ridiculous. Um, but what they're doing is they're giving a radical sheen to just conventional liberal politics because they want to rehabilitate the image of conventional liberal politics, and they don't want to admit that they are complicit in any kind of systemic failure. Yeah. Um, so that, I think, is the function of this kind of resist mantra and, and has been from the outset. I mean, the Democratic Party itself now says, like, if you want to resist, you can. we'll give you a resistance button and then sure. you're on our mailing list and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's just like the opposite of radicalism in a way. So, okay. Um, but, um, yeah. Just to, to sort of jump in there maybe because, I mean, on the one hand, it's, you know, I think you've laid it out very well there, the, the problem with the liberal exploitation of the term fascism. But maybe now I can ask you to sort of jump in with your thoughts on how the sort of more proper left is responding to to fascism, because we do have this kind of like open question as to what extent, you know, the the right today is uh, in the in the in the sense of sort of the far right um, is constituted by these 
ultra-nationalist irony warriors are kind of um, finding themselves being pushed out of the movement and the white nationalists are taking over. And I, it gave me some pause for a minute because I was just like, you know, is that true? Is there data to support that? I, you know, where would you even begin to, to sort of put that together? And yet there does seem to be a very strong, and obviously emotions are high and justifiably so, you know, what happened is totally egregious and unforgivable. And it is imperative for the left um, to address right-wing racism, right-wing violence, be it against Jews, Muslims, black people, activists, organizers, what have you. But many on the left today, and I'm not talking about the near attendance, I'm talking about the, the actual left, to, you know, openly calling for street combat, for punching Nazis. And this is understandable, I think. You know, we've seen patently unfair responses on the part of the police as they seem to give white supremacist protesters a free hand while, you know, um, cracking down ferociously on Black Lives Matter protesters. Here in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, we had um, disabled protesters um, tossed out of their wheelchairs as they were occupying um, Senator Portman's office a few weeks ago. Um, it, it's a, it's, it, there does seem to be a, a, a disproportionality. So it's understandable that I think activists would want to sort of take up the question of self-defense, self-protection. Um, but in your view, uh, is punching Nazis a real solution here, or is it more like feel-good rhetoric? I honestly don't see how it's a real solution to anything. Um, that trend to me is disconcerting in innumerable ways. I mean, one way in which it's disconcerting is I think it leads people on the left to be dismissive of the value of protecting free speech. I mean, and now this is a a theme that comes up very frequently now. But you know, just in the aftermath of this Charlottesville episode, yeah. I've seen a lot of people saying. You know that perhaps we should just try to use state power to curtail free expression, um, and and make it criminal yeah. for people to do you know a Nazi salute or to um, engage in rhetoric that they deem uh, excessively hateful or inciting. Um, and I think that the trend toward that kind of conception of of politics is very worrying um and it's illiberal um and i mean a liberal in sort of the classical sense um Mm. which i don't think people should shy away from embracing i mean if you're talking about small l liberalism meaning individual rights and, and protection of free expression i think there's very much a place for that tradition on on the left and in fact it's almost indispensable to a fruitful left-wing paradigm in my opinion Mm -hmm. um so that you have people attacking the aclu as fascist enablers um to me is incredibly short-sighted and same aclu that's defending the uh disabled wheelchair uh protesters that were kicked out of senator portman's office a few weeks ago that i just mentioned right you know yeah, and I, I just think you know it's a constant battle to impress upon people why free speech is so vital, mm-hmm. um, and there is now a tendency to view because a lot of right wing trolls and um, activists now have adopted the mantra of free speech for their own purposes. I think there's been a reaction where now on the part of some, free speech is viewed as somehow this inherently right wing concept, which is just hogwash. Um, and I think it ought to be reclaimed to the extent that it needs to be reclaimed uh, because there, free speech is, is rightly a, a cornerstone of any any vibrant intellectual movement or uh, political movement. Um, and um, it ought to be defended stridently. So for people to not have any awareness that in denouncing the ACLU, they're kind of setting the groundwork for – they themselves to potentially be victimized by an anti-free speech state authority in the future is really worrying. It seems just it's, it, it seems to be indicative of a lack of memory, or maybe that stuff was never learned in the first place. But yeah. it should be. And um, you know, in terms of how people on the left, uh, one thing that's uh, one, uh, and furthermore, one thing that's worrying to me is that I, I see a lot of leftists. And these are people maybe in DSA or or kind of ancillary to DSA who 
adopt just by osmosis some of the more you know uh, lazy tropes of the liberal class um, because the liberal class frames it as anti-Trump or anti-Nazi or whatever, and then you know just by being proximate to that, they end up kind of falling into similar logical um, sinkholes and. I think it's understandable because you want to because you know criticizing Trump is perfectly good and fine when when it where it's where it's logical and rational and warranted, um, but just because Trump is such a domineering presence in American politics, um, I think it's it's led to a lot of lazy thinking, probably most prominently among liberals, but also again just by extension elements. Of the left, I think the left have have more of a, a have a, a greater toolkit to kind of counter those um, unconstructive uh, instincts, but but they're definitely observable here and there, and you know I think it ought to be said. And again, I have to parse this very carefully because I don't want to be misinterpreted. Yeah, but I think it ought to be said that the reason why, or one of the reasons why, the event in Charlottesville yesterday escalated as it did mm-hmm. was because these a couple hundred right-wing guys had their stature elevated in the media and on yeah. the on the left and hence a lot of left-wing activists flooded into Charlottesville to put up a popular front or whatever and some of them probably instigated some physical confrontation or, or violence. Now I'm not in, in, in observing that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay? yeah I am yeah. in no way excusing the right wing demonstrators in, in a, in a way and that them even showing up and mm. propounding the, the message that they propound is guaranteed to stoke, um, tensions and, 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 and be, be and yeah, it's intended to be provocative. It's intended to, um, maybe even, yeah, again, provoke people to in, into acting out. Um, mm. So they are the prime movers here, and if they hadn't shown up, this wouldn't have happened. But um, the reaction to it is to flood Charlottesville, and then you get certain left-wing activist types, maybe anarchists or wh- whoever, mm-hmm. who take it upon themselves to instigate physical violence. And, uh, I mean – the the word violence um, maybe doesn't encompass throwing a rock at a car or something, but whatever mm-hmm. it might have been, um, I think you know in 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 that sense they are contributors to this. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not a normative. I'm, I'm not saying that their being contributors somehow makes them equally blameworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a just an observation of fact. Sure. sure. And and I think there's a lot of appetite among elements of the left. To, um, to get involved in this kind of street warfare, and I just don't see how this. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't see how this ends well. Yeah. Um. Or what it actually achieves. And again, it's just a. Um, I I can remember back to like the days of Occupy Wall Street when a couple people would throw a rock or, or do something. Uh, that just you know destroy property or or whatever, and that was used to tarnish the entirety of the movement. And I, I don't want to engage in that. Um, I just think it's sort of incumbent on anybody who's honest to just rationally observe that these kind of these counter uh, countervailing forces kind of play off one another. Sure. And it's not to draw false equivalents. It's not to do whataboutism or whatever the latest kind of. Oh, look, people are going to say that anyway, man. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, a, it's just, a, just. A, I'm just a, a, as as yeah. much as I can. I'm just trying to do a, a sober assessment here, and that's yeah. seems like a, a pretty basic fact about what's gone on. Listen, I um have one last question for you, and it, I think it might be a bit controversial, um, but um, I can sort of segue from this idea you were putting uh, forward there a minute ago about the ACLU and uh, maybe um, needing to understand the value of our institutions. Um, I'm not a super big state defender, and I don't uh, have any illusions about the 
corruption of the American law enforcement system um, or the problems associated with police unions. But uh, I was reading a piece by Cedric Johnson in um, Jacobin just the other day. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I was reading it, rereading it because um, it came to mind after, after um, a big controversy emerged at the DSA convention or in the wake of it, at least uh, last week, where it turned out that a man by the name of Danny Fatonti had been elected to the uh, NPC. And uh, Fatante is the founder of his, his chapter, which is the DSA chapter in Austin, Texas. And it turns out he was once an organizer with uh, what's known as the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas, or CLEAT, uh, which is a police and correctional officer union. Now, he hadn't mentioned this fact in his campaign materials this year, although apparently he ran in 2015 and it was mentioned there. But the information is widely available if you search his name in Google, and it does seem clear that a number of folks from his local chapter who were active on the floor lobbying for him uh, or sort of campaigning in support of him over the weekend uh, were well aware of his background. Um, and uh, whatever else might be said of him, he does seem to have some pretty decent credentials as a left-wing organizer, um, yet there's a huge controversy among membership this week. Um, and I don't know if you've been following it or kept aware of it, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying he lied or was at least uncomradely with the truth that they'd never have voted for him if they'd known he was even remotely involved in police union work. Um, there's just sort of this zero tolerance attitude towards working with the police or being seen to work with the police. Um, DSA's interim steering committee has issued a statement a couple of days ago uh, where they seem to intimate that they're taking a dim view on the matter. And I quote, we believe that Fatante's omission was uncomradely and out of line with the principles of our organization. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, what your take is on this. Uh, just to quickly quote from that Cedric Johnson uh, piece, um, he argues that uh, to achieve real power, you know, the, these campaigns against police violence, you know, to achieve the capacity to realize a different vision of society, deeper solidarity is needed. And that's not going to be achieved solely through social media debates or at the barricades, but by, as he says, less publicized and, but no less crucial work of honest, patient and sustained conversation among activists, victims, families and reformist elements within police unions and departments. Um, he's chasing this idea of emboldening internal dissent, widening the ranks of those willing to break the blue code of silence and counter the most vocal reactionary police elements. Uh, none of this is to suggest, he says, entrenched or support for entrenched police unions, but it is to say that officers are neither monolithic nor devoid of internal contradictions. Um, have you followed this Fatanti controversy? It doesn't seem to be going away. Uh, we're still waiting for clarification um, from DSA as to what stance they're going to take with this guy. Uh, but he says in a statement that he's not going anywhere. Yeah, I've been following it to a degree. Okay. You know, as as in, you know, I'm not a DSA member, right? So I've been following as I guess an outsider. I don't necessarily see it as my role to kind of lecture anybody as to how they should handle an internal matter. Okay. Um, but I do think it's interesting in a number of ways. First, I could understand why people would be very much averse um, to somebody serving on a national board who has connections to law enforcement or at least would be offended if that fact weren't made plain to them ahead of time. Mm -hmm. uh, just because you don't know like how uh, again in a vacuum if somebody is elected to a national committee who has ties in whatever capacity to the police you know you, you maybe maybe it's slightly paranoid but i think at the same time it might be legitimate to wonder whether that means that you know something you say could be fed to somebody with the law enforcement capacity and um if that could compromise you know your internal deliberations in any way. Um, on the other, and then um, also, I think you know police unions writ large are probably a, uh, one of the most effective forces of reaction in the country. No doubt, um, they have 
stranglehold over municipal politics in many areas. I mean, Absolutely. they're a very strong union. They protect their members well, yeah. um, but they do so in service of ends, which I think would be rightly regarded as reactionary. Um, and just given the activism around police in recent years and um, how they have come to be viewed, it's not surprising in the least to me that there would be this negative response to somebody who has been involved in police unions serving on the national yeah. board. Now, I think it does – on the other hand, I think there is something to be considered in you know, whether we would take out our – I'm speaking just in the in the broad collective sense here, but like whether we would take out our animus against police unions as an, as a whole on any one individual person. I mean, yeah. so you don't want to say that. Just I don't, I don't I don't think you would want to say that somebody's entire life must be um, characterized solely by their affiliation with one organization because you know there are always dissenters within various institutions and people who don't go with the flow and who who um you know who 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 run counter to the organizational ethos now the police are sort of maybe different from your average institution just because i think it's plausible to make an argument that just by dint of your membership in a police department or a police union you are in a sense actively complicit with what they do on an institutional level. Um, and, uh, so I think maybe police get less of a benefit of a doubt in this regard, but nonetheless, there is a wide, uh, diversity of opinion within police departments. And I sort of know this personally just by doing, having done reporting on them. Um, mm-hmm. um, so do I understand the, uh, the reaction to his being elected? Yes. Um, do I think the proper recourse is necessarily to demand that sort of ad, uh, post hoc rules be adopted and he'd be expelled on that, those grounds? Um, you know, I, I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a um, right. I, I totally, I mean, I, I do understand. Yeah. It's, it's highly complex. Um, I think, you know, maybe what could be done is that this could be used as an occasion to, uh, deliberate some interesting issues around police and, and, uh, and, uh, or organizational diversity and, and how, how to kind of reconcile all this, um, on the on the other hand, that probably ought to have been done at the convention itself. Right. So I definitely recognize that people are in a bind. Um, mm-hmm. I just don't have any good good go- good conclusions in in terms of how it should be handled on a practical level. No, and I I, I'm, I guess I'm not asking you for the the solution, but I, I you know as a as a sort of a broader proposition, um, we do have members who are. Uh, veterans. We have members who are formerly bankers in Wall Street firms, um, and I dare say there's there's probably members from another of other, shall we say, problematic backgrounds. Um, given that, uh, I I can't imagine all, um, any of the candidates for election uh, probably made fully accurate or fully truthful statements because no campaign statement can ever be all encompassing. Um, it does seem to be important to identify the fact that he um, that it that it that it was the omission specifically of his connections with police activity that were the problem and uh, and if and if we are drawing a bar there uh, where those bars might be set for future elections it becomes relevant and um, I uh, worry uh, myself uh, um, that. Uh, DSA might become, I mean, I am a member, uh, so I'll speak freely here. <laughs> uh, I do worry that, um, you know, we might start creating an uncomfortable climate, number one. And number two, um, again, just keeping in mind that Cedric Johnson piece, which, you know, has really haunted me on this whole affair. You know, the idea that um, this battle isn't going to be won overnight, uh, our ideals um, abolishing the police, abolishing prisons, you know, radically changing the law enforcement system. You know, that 
to achieve those, we're going to need a very different America. And um, that America isn't here yet and isn't going to be for a while. So, um, you know, there's going to be some need for work at the nitty gritty level. And um, I think that's going to require a kind of a, if you'll forgive me, hacker ethos. <laughs> um, you know, we're going to have to think about what it's going to take to change these institutions in a kind of a piecemeal manner, uh, taking what victories we can here and there, um, as opposed to achieving wholesale reform. As much as I would support the wholesale reform and as much as I would like to see those sort of things happen overnight, I'm just not convinced that they're going to be uh, possible, really. Um, DSA is a very small organization. The left in America is very weak. Um, um, it, there's a, there's a, a mountain of work to be done uh, before we have anything like the kind of electoral clout that we need, for example, let alone, um, you know, uh, these big sort of capital letter campaigns that were uh, being floated around at the convention last week. Uh, so um, I just sort of have those concerns about needing to think in the here and now. But, uh, Michael, it's been great having you on the show. I really appreciated it. Yeah, great to great to be with you. And any final uh, words? <laughs> no, no, I don't know if I, if I have any final words. Um, just best wishes to everyone listening. How about that? Oh, keep it keep nice it positive, man. It was a real pleasure to meet you, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's yeah, sure, always happy to do it. <laughs>